previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. I wasn't the strongest player. I wasn't the fastest player. I was just the player that truly was going to annoy the heck out of you and never give up. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome to episode 43 of the Sports Refuge, the weekly interview show where guests discuss their connection with sports. I'm your host, Earl Holland. My guest for this episode, Carmen Frazier and I first met when she was a communications student at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, where she profiled me for a class assignment featuring journalists. Since that time, Frazier has built a lengthy personal resume of her own that included playing Division I softball for UMES and working in various production capacities at WMDT-TV in Salisbury, Maryland, WMAR-TV in Baltimore, Maryland, before returning home to WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. In this episode, Carmen and I discuss how she became interested in softball, what led to her journey playing Division I softball at Coppin State University and then UMES, and how attending a historically black college impacted her life. We'll also discuss what it's like working behind the scenes in the newsroom environment, as well as how she started her own t-shirt business, Make a Statement T-shirts. And now, here's my interview with Carmen Frazier. Carmen, thank you for coming on the Sports Refuge. I really do appreciate it. No problem. I'm just honored that you even think of me as somebody worthy to talk to. And I think, especially your background, you you played a lot of sports. You were a Division One athlete at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. How long had you played the game of softball, and was that your sole sport when you were growing up? Um, Actually, I started off with baseball. So I started playing sports at uh, first grade, and through first and about third grade, I was really, really, really good at baseball. But for some reason, I would never get picked for the all-star team because the players got to pick who they wanted on the team, and me being the only girl the only black person on a team in the suburbs, I never got picked. So it was heartbreaking for me, and I never understood why at such a young age. So one of the players' um, father was like, hey, my daughter plays softball. Maybe you should try and get her into softball. It might be a little bit of an even playing field with um, just players being nicer to her is what they suggested. So from third fourth grade on for now still till today I just stuck with softball um and it just it was kind of almost natural and it clicked just like how baseball for me almost clicked I never thought I would be doing sports like I never showed interest in the first place you just kind of just threw me up there and just the whole sport clicked what was tougher at the time hitting a baseball or hitting a softball so I would definitely say hitting a softball probably be a lot harder because when I was doing baseball, I was doing machine pitch. And with machine pitch, they kind of just stick the ball in the machine and you know where exactly where it was going to go. It was going to be a fastball right down the middle. So when I start playing softball, that's when um, the other players were pitching and then you have more movement of the ball. And also, a lot of people don't realize softball is a harder sport to play than baseball because the field is a lot smaller. So you have less time to react throughout the whole game. So you have less time to react for the pitcher getting the ball to the plate as a batter. You have less time to react as a fielder um, getting the ball hit to you because the field is much smaller, and you have less time as a runner to get from one base to the next because, again, the bases are a lot closer together. So I would say challenge-wise, softball definitely. 
Was there any hesitation going in and playing softball after playing baseball? Um, again, I was young, so I never really understood why I had to change. So I was a tomboy too, so it almost seemed natural to me to play with all the boys. Going into softball, it was a lot more girly girl, and they did cheers, and I was just like, this is weird. I, I don't know if I'm going to be get used to this. And like at first, I really didn't talk to anybody just because I had my guy friends that I like grew up with, and I just kind of felt out of place. But then I eventually fell in love with, like, the sisterhood that I know if I continued to play baseball, I would have never gotten because there was always going to be a challenge with being accepted from the guys the higher and higher I got up. So softball, it was like they embraced me a lot easier. And so I think it was a good move by my mother to switch me from baseball to softball. Now, looking back at it at this age, do you sort of wonder how you would have fared the older you got if you played baseball? No, not really. I haven't hit a baseball in forever. So I want to know if I still got it. That's probably the only thing that I think about. But like I said, I think my mom did a great decision of switching me because it's, again, it's harder enough being a minority in a predominantly white sport. So just also being a girl in a predominantly male sport would have just put too many barriers in my way. So now that I'm older, I see why she did it. What were your thoughts on Monet Davis's run, especially in the Little League World Series? I know now she's playing softball at a D1 school and an HBCU, also in the MEAC. And what were your thoughts when you saw her out on the mound playing against the boys, especially uh, representing uh, Philadelphia and a predominantly black team? So, first of all, that is an amazing story. Like, her, how, where she came from and her upbringing and how she was just able to play so many different sports. Now, she's an all-around athlete. I wish I had those skills. But seeing her playing on that mound, it kind of almost made me like, Dad, if I stuck with it, would I still be here? I mean, I went to the World Series for softball, but it's it's different being on that field in the baseball. It gets so much more attention. It's like nationally televised. So seeing her on there, it brought joy to my heart. It's also kind of sad that this is not the norm, that there should be more girls. There's girls who are awesome, better than boys at baseball. That definitely should be out there. Um, but seeing her out there, definitely, definitely proud, proud, proud moment. Um, and then her then going on to pick an HBCU. Like, people don't understand the importance of HBCUs to African-American athletes. As playing a sport where you don't see yourself and people like you often, um, being able to go to an HBCU where everybody there looks like you, it changes your world. It changes your perspective in life. So I know she's going to have a blast at Hampton. And I just, again, think she's a phenomenal athlete just to be able to switch over like that. Um, Because, again, baseball and softball mechanics are different between both sports. Um, So seeing her and then now this year, they had, uh, what was her name, Madison, Maddie, I believe that's her name. She was on the Minnesota team. So she, this year for the Little League World Series, she was the first girl since Monet. And I'm like, dang, that's crazy. That was like almost five years ago. And to only see two girls in the Little League World Series for baseball, it's just like we need more. After playing softball recreationally, going on to high school, did you play other sports in addition to softball? 
Um, I won't really claim it. I did cheerleading uh, just because my closest friends were not into sports like that. They did like the girly sports of like cheerleading and dance team and stuff like that. So the only other time I did something separate was when I did like cheerleading with them just so I could spend more time with them because for me, softball was life. So once I got to a higher level, when I stopped playing rec, I started doing travel ball and travel ball is year round. And then I also was doing high school ball. And then my mom, just for the kicks of it, decided to throw me in another like recreational team. So at one point, many years of my life, I was playing on three different softball teams. So the only time I got to spend time with like my friends outside of softball was either if I participated in like cheerleading or something, or if they came to one of my tournaments. So really softball has been a one since a long, very, very, very long time. How did you try not to get burnt out by playing so much softball? I can imagine playing three different teams and all the time that goes into that, that it could be easy to just sort of like, I'm not having fun anymore. I had this conversation so many times with my mother. I would say if it wasn't for her and saying, well, you don't got a choice. I don't know if I still, because there was, I think later on in my life, once I got older and when my friends used to go out on weekends, I would have to go to bed early to go to a tournament all the way in like Pennsylvania or West Virginia, just far away. So we'd have to wake up four o'clock in the morning and this is your, a weekend. Kids are Normal kids get to sleep in on weekends and do nothing on weekends and relax on weekends. And I have to worry about a whole tournament. So I definitely did get to a point where I don't even want to play anymore. I hate this. This is too much. Um, my mom was just like, you think I got money for college? You got nothing coming. You ain't got no choice. So, okay, you miserable, but you're going to go to this practice. You're going to play your best at this game. So I think her being like as hard as she is on me, I'm very grateful because yes, there was a moment I wanted to quit. I just felt like it was too much, but she wouldn't let me quit. And I hate to admit she knows me better than I know myself. So what was the biggest thing that you were able to do to sort of keep you from losing that fire? Um, I think the biggest thing for me is just to think about the long run. Um, keep myself motivated or like, okay, this is something that I can do in college. There's a, there's a finish line type of thing. Like I want to use this to be able to be able to afford college. And then who knows what can happen after that. So I think having like the finish line in your head, was like my motivation just to keep going because there was, is a lot of times where you just want to give up where you just feel like things aren't clicking uh, or this is too much you get overwhelmed and then being in high school kids there's like high school nonsense happening plus you trying to maintain being an athlete then you gotta keep your grades up so I do think that pressure um it does get hard and it just becomes a lot to deal with but then in the essence of that all that pressure helped me become, and to my opinion, like the diamond I am today. Like just the little life lessons that I've learned from softball and playing for all those years helped me be able to be successful in college. Because unlike other college kids who didn't have that structure as a young child, I was able to uh, balance having classes, being able to go to practice, and still maintain a great GPA because I had that backbone of the structures when I was younger. So 
I am thankful that I did have that vision and I was able to stay with it through all those years. Playing college softball, I know prior to UMES, you had played somewhere else. Where did you play and what led to your decision to make the transition to University of Maryland Eastern Shore? So funny thing. So I originally got recruited to Coppin State University, another HBCU. Um, They recruited me heavy and I thought this was going to be a great fit. But for me, my, my family, I was the second person to go to college in my family, the first person in my family to ever pursue college in an athletic manner. So with that being said, my family knew nothing about signing stuff and getting things in writing and all the things that we should have done prior to me going saying, yes, I'll go to Coppin and going there. So once I got to Coppin, the head coach that I originally had, um, he actually had cancer and he wasn't doing his chemo. So he actually left the season that I was coming in as a freshman. So his assistant coach stepped up and then from there on, it just did not work out for me at all in any way, shape or form. His way of coaching and playing, it was I just didn't like it at all. Um, and so there was also issues with the scholarship that I was promised. Of course, I was promised a scholarship from a previous coach. Since he wasn't coach anymore, he felt the need of not abide by the verbal. Actually, I had it in writing. Thank you, Lord. But he decided he didn't want to give me the money. So I actually had to go above him to get the scholarship money that I was promised because I had emails between me and the coaches to say, this is how much you're supposed to get and everything. So when I did that in the beginning, the coaches hated me from the jump start. So I could have never really been successful in that program because it almost he always wanted me to fail. Um, so my first year was extremely tough, worrying about finances and me just wanting to play. But it's like the cards kept getting stacked up against me. And so once I finished the year, we went to MEAX. It was a great experience. I thought. We did well. I think I was the only freshman that year to even um, hit a home run. I had, like, great hitting averages and stuff like that. So, to my surprise, after the season, I got a phone call to say, "We're you're no longer needed on the team. And so, to me, and I've said this plenty of times to other people, I know for a fact it was a race thing. Um, the coach at the time, he was a white man, and he just did not – find black athletes as to me valuable as I know that we are. Um, He just felt as though he could do so much more with white girls as athletes. And he made comments to us like, you know, you can yell at a white athlete in their face and they won't get catching out to it. They won't say nothing and they won't run back. And so it's just like, he's made comments like that before. Um, So yeah. So once he cut me, I personally was like, you know what, this wasn't for me anyway, so I quickly um, contacted the coach at UMES, and he took me on. Um, the funny thing is, I wasn't the only one that got cut. He cut the majority of all the black kids that were on the team that year. Um, so one of my friends who actually stayed there, she actually got cut. Then the team that he used for the next year, they all got hurt. So he asked her back onto the team. She came back on the team our sophomore year. And then after the sophomore, he cut her again. 
So I know I made the best decision for myself to leave because if I would have stayed there and say he would have asked me, like I would have been crushed to be cut again, what he did to one of my friends. And again, I know she was a phenomenal player. We both came up in the same leagues together and I know she's great. So the fact that he just cut us and wouldn't give us a good reason, the reason that he said was he was going in a different direction. So then going to UMES, it was a little different because that team was a lot less competitive than what I was used to. But I just built really great relationships with some girls who are like some of my best friends today. And going to UMES actually helped me with my media career. So when I was originally at Coppin, they didn't really have a journalism program or anything like that. They had print, and I wasn't necessarily interested in print, but I was just doing it just because I still wanted to play softball. Um, going into UMES, they actually had a whole program. They had a radio station. They had a TV program. They've had, so they had all these different opportunities that I probably would have never got into if I didn't get cut from the softball team at Coppin and then ended up going to UMES, which was a college that my aunt went to, who's the first person in my family to graduate. So it was, it kind of meant a lot more to then go to that school. When it came to transferring, did you lose any eligibility? How did that all work out? And when it came to credits, how did that work out, especially not putting you back behind a year or so? So that actually was the some of the issues with the whole money thing. Um, so when I went to say, you guys promised me this money, um, I need, so where is it? So they're like, well, we don't have any more money in a softball budget. So if you join our bowling team, and this was at Coppin State, they had just made this new bowling program, and they had asked um, some athletes who were already in tennis and track because you have to get clear house. And that's a long process, and it was easier for them to already have athletes who already went through that whole process to play D1 sport to then join the bowling team. So then they had said, we don't have any more money in the softball budget, but if you play bowling, we will give you that money. I am the worst bowler in the world. That was <laughs> the worst time of my life. I absolutely hate bowling. Till this day, because of that, I refuse to go bowling. It was just horrible. So I did do the bowling just to get the scholarship money. So then when I pleaded to um, NCAA that, hey, I know you can't switch within divisions, um, but technically I wasn't getting money for softball, which is a sport that I'm switching for. I was getting money for bowling. And so after writing appeals and all this back and forth, they finally got back to me, I think, the week of I was supposed to start copping, and they're like, okay, well, we looked through your records, and technically, but no technically, like, there was so many red lines. They said, well, we'll make you sit for a semester. So I actually had to end up sitting for a semester at UMES um, before I could actually play. So I still practiced with them, so I still was part of the team, but I could only uh, participate in home games. And I would still have to practice like I was one of the members of the team. Um, it was extremely hard to have to sit out because that's the first time I've ever not played softball in my life. But, again, I was fortunate because most kids have to sit for an entire year or two years if they transfer within divisions. Um, and then when it came to the credits, 
that was another tricky thing to deal with because they're quick to say, oh, no, you have to retake this class because it's different. So what I actually ended up having to do was sit in the um, the transfer office almost every single day. I had my old Coppin um, transcripts and, like, syllabus and all that. And so I had to personally go and match the classes based off of the syllabus and be like, this is this class. This is this class. So they don't do that work for you. They just say, oh, it's not the same name. It's not the same class. So I had to prove that the classes I took at Coppin were the exact same classes that they offered at UMES, that I would not lose credit. So I was one of those few lucky ones who I never missed. Um, I graduated on time. I never had to retake a class or anything like that. Everything was able to transfer over for me. So extremely lucky that I was my biggest advocate for that. And I think at some of these universities, not even just UMS, I feel like some of these universities, you have to do the legwork for them because they'll easily sometimes lose your money or lose your forms or things like that. And you have to make sure that, you know, that you're on your P's and Q's because if you aren't, they don't seem like they will be. I would say definitely the big key, and this is for any I would hate to say HBCU, but I don't really know the experience at um, PWIs, which is predominantly white institutes. Um, but I know for HBCUs, all the stories and things that I've heard, the key is make copies, make copies, make copies. Have a copy of everything that you give to them. Um, remember names, who you've talked to, keep correspondence, because in a second, they will be like, you didn't have that. We don't remember that conversation. That didn't happen. And I almost feel like it's another way to keep your money, like to keep you in school longer and stuff like that. So I learned that quick to just, I think my first experience with the um, first copping coach of saying, oh, we didn't offer you any scholarship money. And I'm just like, that's the only reason why I came here. And so having that experience, my first year in college, I think really made me like then keep track of everything throughout the years um so i could go back and be like nope on this date you said this on it so nobody was going to do that to me but i've definitely heard stories of people having to retake classes and um missing and having to graduate late because of mistakes that administrations have made yeah, and I know that especially there are times me and my brother, especially as I'm heading into my senior year and he's heading to his freshman year at UMES, we had paperwork go missing. And we wanted to make sure, or we've heard stories of people having paperwork go missing and, and may have had a case where paperwork didn't show where it was supposed to. We actually went down, drove from Snow Hill to Prentice Ann, walked into the registrar's office at JT Williams, gave them in hand a copy of our financial aid and stuff, and we didn't have an issue. I've heard some people have people like Dr. Holden do their paperwork in front of them and still have issues with their paperwork being processed or being found at all. Yeah. And it's, it's sad because I am a huge advocate for an HBCU. Um, it taught me so much about myself that I didn't even know. But it's like they just have to do better overall because it shouldn't be that easy to lose paperwork or mishandle things. And it's like if other schools can do it, why can't we get it together? It's a fight right now to keep HBCUs alive and keep HBCUs open. And it's just like you got to help yourself for us to help you. And one of the other discussions I'm going to ask, going to an HBCU with no football team, you actually, 
experienced that twice going to Coppin and UMES and not having that Saturday afternoon excitement that maybe places like Morgan or Howard or Delaware State would have had. And how did you sort of handle those lonely and empty, those quiet days of no football on Saturday? Um, so I would definitely say it got replaced with partying. So I didn't miss it. I can't really say I really missed that football experience because I just never got to experience it. The only time that it kind of sucks is because now that I'm um, alumni, homecoming is different. So majority, everybody else actually has homecoming during the fall when the football season happens. Because I went to Coppin and UMES who did not have football teams, their homecoming is technically when the basketball season starts, which is the winter. So I go to back to UMES for homecoming every single year, and our homecoming is in February. And everybody looks at me like I'm crazy. They're like, wait, homecoming was September. Like, why are you going to a homecoming now? So that's the only weird part, but then it's good because I can go to my other friends' schools during the fall time and like Howard and go to their homecoming. But I would say because I didn't have it, it's like I didn't know what I was missing. And I mean, again, we still have the exact same hyped homecoming. We just have it a different season and that's just for a basketball. So I would just say, I guess it's glad that I didn't get to experience it at a big school where it's all football and then have to go to a small school with no football. And I think one of the connotations is that an HBCU isn't an HBCU without football, which has been something that even my time at UMES, which was probably maybe like 10 years of difference between when you graduated, maybe longer than that. And it just had that whole feeling of, you know, doesn't feel like it's really an HBCU or a black school. And I 100% agree. Like, I've had classes where we've discussed that. Like, why don't we have a football team? Like, we have so many wonderful athletes. And the issue was, um, and this is what I was told from teachers, that just financially, like, you're only as strong as the community that your school is located. And financially, I would say the Princess Inn area is one of the poorest um, counties in Maryland. So when you take that in consideration, if we had football games at UMES, the students get them for free. So it's like you need to count on boosters, you need to count on people in the community who actually want to come to a game to pay for that. But if these people can barely afford to put food on their table, they're not going to support a football team. So it's like unless they were going to get granted money, the football program would never be successful in the area like Princess Anne. And I would say Salisbury's down the street. I would even say their football program is that strong. Um, it's just that area just doesn't have the income or the money to like feed into an athletic program like the football, which takes up a lot of money. And I've done a lot of stories, just sort of the odds and things, what they would need to do to bring back a football program. Also, some of the other things I've heard, it's just sort of maybe the tenuous relationship between the university and the town itself and as well as a lot of people talking about how the university of maryland basically killed umes's football team just Mm -hmm. because they were jealous of the success that was going on and that was another thing and there's so many different things that have been talked about and so many things that have been brought up and i think really it's been a combination of all those three and i think also when you look at it and over the past few years i think while you see Salisbury just completely overhaul their athletic complex, 
UMES hasn't had so much luck. They're barely able to field a, uh, a men's tennis team, even though that was eliminated in order to get a, a women's golf team, which honestly I think makes more sense for to have women's golf if the men's tennis team can barely put anything together. But I feel like there's a lot of stuff. There, we don't have any big-name alumni to give back money. And the people who did used to give back money to help bring football back were so jaded after finding out that money didn't go to help fund football again. And that was in the mid-'90s. And I don't think at this point we can always keep hoping and wishing that football will come back. I don't think it's ever coming back in a D1 form. The club team might be the closest they'll ever get to it again. And I 100% agree with that. Like, I have siblings right now growing up, and it's hard for me because I want to push for them to, of course, go to the same school that I go to or go to an HBCU, period. But it's like, it's almost like these black African-American athletes, that's not their desire. That's not their first school. And that's like a shame because these are wonderful schools. And if African-Americans as a whole would come together and play for HBCU, no PWI would be able to beat us because majority of PWIs, they have all black people on their team. And it's like, dag, if they would support the only schools that would accept their ancestors back in the day, if they understood the reason there's HBCUs is because white schools did not want you there. And it's like they didn't want you there until they realized, oh, they could give me some real money because they're really talented. So it's just like they took all the biggest names in every single sport and they actually played for an HBCU. I think HBCUs would be able to power over these uh, PWIs and actually be contenders in, like, um, all the big tournaments. And so it's kind of sad to see, and I would hope one day that it changes. All it takes is, like, one really, really big name star. And I think Monet Davis is kind of making a way for it because, again, she got offers from everywhere. And for her to pick an HBCU... Um, I just think that's kind of like little small victories that we should grasp on um, and hopefully more athletes do the same in the future. And I know you mentioned as you made your transition to UMES from Coppin that you had an interest in broadcasting. What led to such an interest in broadcasting? So I love to talk. I've always been a talker. Like my nickname growing up was Chatterbox. I never shut up. Um, So For me, I always wanted to be involved in media. Um, When I first started, of course, I thought I wanted to be in front of the camera. Then I quickly learned in this industry, it's very, very shallow. It's all about what you look like, what you sound like. And personally, for me, I love me. I love how I look. I love how I talk. Like I don't want to change myself to fit a certain stereotype for other people to be comfortable with me. So quickly I've learned, yes, I love media, but maybe in front of the camera is not necessarily for me. And then I also learned that being behind the camera, you can move up markets and get paid a lot more money a lot more faster. And after leaving college, that was my biggest focus was how can I make the money? Who's about to hire me? How can I use this degree in any way, shape, or form? So that's basically... I knew I wasn't wanting to be in media from when I was younger. And so I just had to figure out how I was going to get there once I left the college. And I know you were mentioning, especially the shallow and superficial nature of television. 
And I always think about it. I was always curious in going and doing something in front of the camera because I could see some of the people on TV, some people who are sports anchors, and some people I'm like, I could be so much better than them. I didn't really give it a shot. It's because I felt, again, the superficial nature. And I know you could say for every Al Roker or for every Star Jones or for every whoever else, they're going to want someone thinner. And it's not even just black personalities. There's more white personalities as well where you see that. I remember times that, and we both had her, Marilyn Burkle talked about how sometimes they were a little superficial with, you know, they didn't want bald guys or older guys or older women on television. And I feel like it doesn't matter in that case, color wise, if you look a certain way, if you are thinner and you look like, I feel like that whole uh, look of being able to relate with people was something that tends to get missed and overlooked when it comes to uh, television personalities. Oh, yeah, I 100% agree. Um, Even with, like, the small movement now with the natural hair movement, which I'm all for, um, that was probably one of my biggest things is I would have to chemicalize my hair. I would have to straighten my hair because straight hair is the only type of hair accepted on TV. It's the only kind of hair that is acceptable for black, white, purple. doesn't matter what you are. As long as your hair is straight, no curls, no kinks, no nothing like that. And if it's not straight, then... You can't be on TV. And so just little things like that. Like, And I love switching my hair around. Like, If you look at my social media, I have a new hairstyle every month. Like, My coworkers now, once a month starts winding down, like, okay, so what color are we doing next? What are we doing next? And so just like I like being able to be a black woman, be able to switch my hair in a few weeks and be a completely different person. Um, so just the little things of the hair. And like you said with the weight, like I know I could – possibly go down to the well i i know for a fact with curves i'd be okay in the south but then at the same time i'm getting barely nothing to do this job like that's what people don't realize to make it in this industry you have to basically get two pennies and rub them together and hopefully be able to pay your rent so that was a struggle that i personally did not want for myself um of having to want to be on camera you have to go to really small markets like poor areas before you can actually make it into a bigger market such as dc or anything like that and i was just not in for that struggle and i also just like i said didn't want to change myself to please anybody and i know you were talking about especially different hairstyles and you can look back in the 70s you can see on channel 4 jim vance had a fro you could see on channel 13 oprah had a fro you see a lot of people who had particular hairstyles culturally based and maybe it was just that time period where you could have those people have that and it's not like you saw anyone on tv on the 80s with a jerry curl but i feel like that you know you still saw at sometimes they let them be themselves and i guess now maybe in this whole uh, focus group type thing it makes me think of the movie Up Close and Personal where they basically had Michelle Pfeiffer's character basically change her look change her hairstyle change certain things and aspects about her and I, I couldn't imagine having to go through all of that yeah like I'm not sure personally like when it changed when it was not okay to be yourself on TV or like just your natural hair and um so it is kind of upsetting to see, but I know for a fact that it is changing just a little bit. Um, those anchors uh, right now on the ABC network who wear the natural hair, um, Janae Norman, she, I love her. And she actually did a piece um, earlier this summer about how her transition from 
wearing the wigs and weaves to now being able to wear her natural hair on network. And she's gorgeous. So just seeing um, little glimpses of hopes like that, like I do hope one day that African-American journalists don't feel like they have to hide behind weaves and wigs or have to straighten their hair every single day because that also, black people's hair is not meant to be like that. It's not meant to be straight. So like you're killing and damaging your hair to fit this image of what European beauty says you should look like. And it's annoying and I just can't wait for the day where somebody can go on the news with an afro like they did back in the day and it not be such a huge deal or not be such a big story. Um, but yeah, that's the thing. It's the audience, they get distracted over the littlest things. And so that's why you have to be a certain way when you're delivering the news. That's why you can't have like a really heavy accent or you can't have um, anything that could distract a person from paying attention to what you're saying. And so that's the thought behind they want the straight hair, the nice, simple look, the clean look, um, no curves, anything like that, because the idea is it doesn't distract the audience, the simpler you look. You know, and I also mentioned, of course, Up Close and Personal, but there's a movie, basically, I, I thought about this well before Up Close and Personal, and it just came to my head, Living Large with uh, T.C. Carson, uh, Kyle from Living Single where he played a news anchor and he basically went through that whole thing and he had to cut his twist and all this other stuff. And they basically had him transform himself into what they thought that he should have been. And as you see the movie, I'm not sure it's a, that movie's almost 30 years old and he just see, he feels like he loses a connection with himself. And that made me think of that movie. And that made me think of that whole situation as well. And I feel like, I can only imagine what black anchors and reporters have to go through when it comes to being on that side of the camera and, and dealing with those types of things. And yeah, I feel bad for them, but it's also for me, what I feel worse about is that little girl watching the news. Cause I was that little girl who never got really got to see me or somebody like me on the news. I don't even think like the networks and understand like the power and just seeing that and seeing yourself on the television in a positive light. And I mean, it's a shame because we're not all the same. We all come in different shapes and curves and colors and hair textures. And so it's just, it would be nice to see everybody represented on like an equal playing field. So I do hope, like, that's one of my main goals working in media. Like, I hope one day to be a news director because I always reach for the stars. I reach for as high as you can get. So I would love to be a news director one day. And I will be hiring, um, people who are in different ethnicity, people who have different hair textures, and I want them to embrace themselves because the stereotype that straight blonde is the only way to do the TV, do news, it's it's bogus at this point. And there is a movement right now for people to embrace themselves, and whether they're gay, straight, um, black, white, Republican, Democrat, like there is almost a movement now to like just be yourself and embrace who you are and i definitely would embrace that with an entire news station as your career in news and broadcast television progressed you started out at wmdt what were your roles and how did they change as you moved on to baltimore and then as you moved on to uh, washington so when i first started at um salisbury i was the morning news producer 
And so my role for that was everything. And I didn't realize that when they said you'll be doing everything, that I would be doing everything. So when you go to a smaller market, there's less resources, there's less people. So you're literally, you have every single role there is until more people start coming into the newsroom, which was around, um, I would say, like 9 a.m. So my day started at like midnight because I had to do two hours of news. And I want to say it started at like 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. and didn't end until like 7. I want to remember, I can't remember the exact times, but it was that early. So I had to put together um, a two-hour morning show. Um, on top of that, I would also have to answer the phones because that's how newsrooms get information, gets tips, is when people call and be like, hey, there's something happening outside of my house. Or did you? Or we had people who listened to scanners, and they would call and be like, oh, we're hearing this activity on the scanners. You should check this out. And so that would be my job, too, making calls and trying to find stories two, three o'clock in the morning. My duties was also to post to our social media. So it seemed like we were a full-functioning TV station, even though it was just me there. On top of that, I would also set up guests to have during our morning show so that I would do that. I also had to post to our website. So I'd have to write up to like three, four articles a day um, and post that. So I learned so much. I think my best lessons were learned at that station First market, market, I want to say 144 in Salisbury, Maryland. I learned so much about the industry just in that job alone. So when I moved on, I actually did get a job as a reporter slash producer in Augusta, Georgia, after I left Salisbury. But, so there's this thing called um, a clean driving record, which I didn't know you technically needed to have. I didn't have any crazy things on my driving record. I just had a few speeding tickets living in Salisbury, Maryland. You guys know um, that 50 where you're just almost over the bridge, like you're almost home, and you just kind of go a little bit faster. Yeah, they used to get me every single time. Um, so I had a few speeding tickets, and because of the speeding tickets, I think I had three. Um, the insurance company for the company that I was going to go to in Augusta, Georgia, was like, you can only have two or less. And so I lost that opportunity to go there to be on camera. So I was completely crushed because I was like, this was my break to do what I really wanted to do. So my mom had said, well, I don't want you to leave and go far away anyway. I'm from Maryland. So she's like, why don't you just apply to jobs in Maryland? Just stay close to home. I don't know why you keep trying to move across the world from me because she's so dramatic. She thought Augusta, Georgia was across the world from her. Um, so I just went and was like, fine, just to make you shut up, I applied to a job in Baltimore, Maryland, not really taking it serious, not really thinking too much of it. And I got an offer from Baltimore and, um, I got another offer from like deep, deep, deep Virginia. Uh, I can't remember where it was in Virginia, but Baltimore of course was offering more to the higher market. So I ended up going to Baltimore and, um, producing again, but but then I was an assistant producer, which was half of the work that I did originally in Salisbury, but I was getting paid more money. So I was like, y'all don't have to tell me nothing. Y'all going to pay me more money to do less work? I'm in there. So I went to Baltimore and being um, an associate producer, so I assisted with writing the 11 p.m. news. It was only a 30-minute show, 
So it really was not complicated at all. I still wrote for the web. Um, and then I also produced one show on Sunday. Um, but these all were 30 minute shows. So that's nothing. Um, so then I kind of got over that and I wanted to be closer to home. Um, yes, I'm from Maryland, but I'm from like the DC part of Maryland called the DMV. So I wanted to move as close as possible to the DMV. So, um, I got a call from a station in DC and then the rest of history. That's where I am right now. Right now I'm a morning producer for the weekend and also produce um, half of during the week. Uh, right now my workload has jumped up again as if I'm back in Salisbury um, because we're really, really, really low staffed in DC. Uh, so I guess it's just blessed that I've had the background in Salisbury to be able to um, book segments. Um, so now I'm playing as a segment producer. I'm playing as a regular producer where I have to put together an hour newscast um, for the morning. Um, and then I also got to post those to the website. Um, and I have to post on social media to kind of tease what's going on. So it's almost like full circle. I'm doing everything that I used to do back in Market 144 in Salisbury, now in um, D.C., and I'm probably one of the youngest people at my job, like, doing what I'm doing, and so I don't think I would be able to be successful doing what I did if I didn't start off um, Salisbury doing everything by myself. Of course, now there's more people to help, but, yeah, it's just funny how things come in full circle. And I know you mentioned before you eventually want to be a news director. What is the ultimate goal after that? Um, I would love to have my own TV show, um, but I don't know. It's just it's almost hard because the direction that news is going into, less people are watching the news, less people can or is going to turn on their TV to actually click to see what's happening in the world, unless it's like your grandmother or something. Um, and I see like certain news stations not jumping in and understanding that most people get most of their news from Facebook. So honestly, I definitely don't see the news industry being in existence much longer personally for me, because just millennials and the younger generation, they're not watching it. And if you don't have that steady income coming into a news from people buying ads, um, then you can't survive and you can't last anywhere without income coming in. So, I mean, I would love to have my own show, but honestly, I would just have to see where the future of media goes to see my next direction, um, where I want to go. Because again, things might change completely 360 once it's time for me to like run a newsroom. And the good thing is, at least you didn't get into print journalism where, and I say this as a person who's worked in print journalism, currently works in radio, two industries that maybe didn't see things coming the right way and are getting hit hard. And I think that television will probably be fine. Just got to reinvent yourself. And I feel like that's the biggest issue now. Network television, people say that's dying, but people still watch network TV. Maybe not cable all the time, but, you know. Nothing's going to be HBO, but there's still, you have your regular 
broadcast networks that people are going to still find the way to look for, even if it isn't live television, is going to be either on demand or bootlegging through fire sticks and things like that, which I know a lot of people do. But (laughs) I think those mediums will be around. Maybe not so much newspaper because those people thought the internet was a fad and apparently everybody else is paying for their stupidity and their lack of foresight. And I mean, yes, I'm, it's a fact. And it's it's almost frustrating now being in a newsroom and being one of the only few minorities, being the one of the youngest, and seeing how slow and slow they're moving to change. It's almost like they don't want to change. And I'm like, you're going to end up like newspapers. Like, when's the last time you see somebody buy a newspaper? Unless they're at the airport. Really, like, when do you see people buy newspapers? And that's like the frustrating part because it's like I see it moving but the people who pay my checks don't see it moving and there's nothing I can do to get them to see it so I mean that's my daily fight and I'm gonna keep being like hey we gotta get on this we gotta move but like I said there's nothing I can really do if the people in charge don't see it one of the other things I wanted to ask you, especially in, in addition to your broadcast career, did you ever think of, I guess, pursuing outside of the news realm, maybe into like features, more like talk stuff, more sports stuff, or or is it just news in general? So I've thought about it, but I really, truly love news for the fact that it's kind of everything in one. I never really wanted to pursue sports because then your focus is only going to be sports. I do see the talk show maybe down the line, but at the same time, I do think the news is important. Like, where are the people to tell you what's going on in your backyard? And for some people, they don't know the littlest things, like there was a robbery next door to you. Something small like that, if it wasn't for your local news. Because a lot of people kind of stay in their own mindset that they don't understand that things around them are happening. So I personally love the aspect of local news where I can dibble and dabble in every type of aspect. You have your hard government news, um, then I can have like a fluff package of a little girl um, doing something really cute and it's going viral. And then I can have that in my news. Then I can have the big sports story in a newscast. So it's like local news was the best outlet for me because I was able to do everything I'm interested in. I'm the type of person who's nosy. I like everything. I like to know everything. And you have that outlet with local news. When you look at the different type of um, outlets out there, it's kind of like you're focused on one thing and one thing alone. And yeah, I like just having a broad knowledge of things. While you were a big athletic person, would you consider yourself a big sports fan? I'm actually probably the worst sports fan ever. People don't understand because I've played sports my entire life. My younger siblings have been playing sports their entire life. I have a huge sports family now. I'm not into sports. Like, I'm a local team person just because I'm here for my local sports that I grew up with, like the Redskins and um, the Capitals and National. But I've never been to a game. I don't really. Like, I'll watch it on TV when I'm in a setting with a whole bunch of people. I know sports. If I'm sitting there watching, I know what's going on. And people look at me like, oh, wait, we forgot you play sports. Because I'm just, other than that, I'm just not really interested. I'm not a huge sports fan. I know I'm like one of the few, almost like a fraud. Like, I'm the type of person that would love to play. 
I love playing sports. I love doing sports. I love getting involved in my siblings, um, their sports, sporting events. Like, I love the action of it, but sitting and watching it is so boring. I can't. It's so boring. <laughs> now, that makes perfect sense because it's not always, you know, that cut and dry. Not everybody. You can have people who sucked at sports but love it. And then you have people who play mm-hmm. sports all the time and just like, mm, it's all right. I don't watch it. You'd have to pay me to watch it. But one of the things yep, I wanted exactly. to <laughs> one of the things I wanted to ask you about, I know that you have a company and that you started a t-shirt company called uh, Make a Statement T-shirt and I saw it especially on social media, especially through Instagram ranks and things like that. What led to your decision to create something like that and what has that process been like? So, it's super 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 new and so the story kind of behind that is my love for like media and like news I almost felt as though the voice that I want to portray I technically can't portray it the way I want to because in news you in local news you learn you have to be unbiased so that means when you're telling a story you have to keep your complete beliefs and thoughts out of it and you just basically have to tell the facts So that is a huge challenge. So for me, being able to be socially conscious about what's going on around me, like my biggest thing is seeing black people get shot by cops like it's nothing when they're not armed, but you have a white man who just shot up and killed 30 people and got shotguns all around their neck, bullets and everything, and somehow, some way, they end up getting arrested with nobody getting shot. It's ridiculous. But see, those types of emotions that I do have, that I do see in news, I can't portray that in the actual newscast. So those frustrations, they kind of like kill me inside. So for me, I wanted to be able to express myself without me having to say anything. So that was the whole idea behind make a statement. So it's make a statement without ever saying a word. Like I want to be able to let people know, no, I don't think this is okay. No, I think that cops should stop killing black people for no reason. No, I don't think that black hair is not professional. Um, Just things like that, that I'm in a world where you're told certain things, where you're supposed to look a certain way, supposed to act a certain way. And it's just like, it's kind of my, almost my rebellion thing against what I'm supposed to believe. Um, So I just came up with make a statement t-shirt and those are basically the thoughts behind it. But then a lot of my friends and family was like, oh, hey, can you make me this shirt? Can you make me this shirt? Oh, I want this shirt to say this. So now it's become almost like a custom T-shirt making shirt. Like everybody calls me, hits me up like, hey, can you make this for me? Can you make that for me? So that's kind of what it is. Um, if I have a random thought in my head and I'll be like, I want to throw this on a shirt, then I actually bought all the equipment and I just put it all together and um, make the shirt. So the process is um, heat press. So basically it's this huge, think of it almost like a huge iron. And like you make the letters or your pictures and you put it on the shirt and then you press this iron on it. And that's how the lettering sticks on the shirt. So um, it's been a huge learning process because this is, for me, I'm not artistic at all. Like, I don't think I got that gene of fashion or art or anything like this. This is literally words. And I just think words are so powerful and they can make a huge difference. And it even, for me, it like almost starts a conversation. 
So one of my favorite shirts is Hey Becky, Hands Off My Culture. And I wear this shirt all the time. I don't care who I'm around, white, black, purple, orange, green. So I wear this shirt all the time. And I'll have white people like come up to me all the time be like, what does that mean? Like, I don't get it. What do you mean? And so being able to explain to them, like, it just means, and I, my perfect example I would uh, give is just imagine Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian wears cornrows for the first time. It's a whole new fad. Black people have been wearing cornrows since slavery. So, and that was one of the routes that um, slaves used to escape freedom was in, they put it in women's cornrows. So it was like that deep history of it. It's always been a part of our culture, but then you have a, a Kardashian wear it for the first time and every news magazine has it as the newest fad. So I said, that's what that means. Like, this is my culture. This is a part of my upbringing. And a lot of Beckys out there like to take it and make it seem like it's their new thing, that they came up with it. So I think that's probably what it mostly is like, just thought-provoking conversation starters. Um, And I love it. It's like my little baby. And I love the support that I've been getting from, like, family and friends. And I've gotten orders from, like, people in Texas and people in California. So it's nice to see um, the response that I'm getting. Um, I've had gotten to back and forth with people because they also think that some of the stuff I've come up with is racist. Um, and I love having that debate with people uh, just because I do have that upbringing. Of, I'm from a suburb of Montgomery County, Maryland, where I was a minority playing softball my entire life until I decided to go to an HBCU to finally play with people who all look like me. I never had that. I was literally the only black girl my entire life. So I would say with having that upbringing, I was able to be around white and black people and still know the difference, know how to handle them and know like different situations and understand life is not always what it seems. So having those conversations with my white people like oh some of the stuff that you say is racist and I'm like no this is why it's not racist this is why I feel this way you look at history books look at a b or c this is why this came from this and then so then I have them like oh okay now we get it so just if I can change one person's mind about something I think that's definitely a more positive than actually making money off of the shirts um I think that's probably my biggest thing too is just my little way of making a difference i sometimes hate this world that we live in and i just see so much crazy stuff working in the news and it's just like this almost brings me joy to kind of see people wear this kind of stuff and people starting these conversations um of things that i would wish the world would change about itself um but hopefully fingers crossed next administration has some more sense than our current cheeto in white house but um other than that i'm just hoping that it can the shirts can move people in a positive way um and move us all together how do you try to meet inventory you said you have a lot of people from around the country requesting stuff how do you try to make sure you can fulfill those orders um so my biggest thing is time management um i don't try to kill myself in getting things done all at one time like I've the most shirts I've had was like 80 shirts. So basically I just split up the 
workload, be like, okay, so I'll do 10 this day, 15 this way, this day, and just kind of split it up that way. Um, also, I would say staying organized. So, like, I have an extra room in my house, and I set that up as, like, my office. And so, like, I have shelves and stuff where I put my shirts. And so it's, like, it lets me know, like, how many colors I have, what sizes I have, and if I need to order more. So it's so much easier to order in bulk and just have them here. So it's the less step that you have to wait to get the shirts and to then make the shirts. Um, so just having everything here makes everything so much easier and staying organized. Um, I think that's probably the biggest thing of just time management and staying organized and keeping track of everything, write everything down. With the aspirations for the company, what is the next step and I guess an evolution? Sometimes, as you mentioned, just talking about your job in the newsroom and how you see people not being able to adapt. And what do you feel like the biggest step in evolution will be for your company? Um, I think the biggest thing for me is being able to stand out from the rest. Um, of course, what I'm doing, it's nothing, it's not like reinventing the wheel. It's, there's a lot of companies out there who have the same desires, um, and come up with great thinking shirts. And so for me, I think it's the next step would just try to come up with something different that hasn't already been done before. And I mean, maybe... I might not come up with it, but maybe I will. And then my biggest thing is then all you need is something to go viral once. And then boom, you kind of have those eyes on you. So that's why I keep trying to come up with different designs and different um, things and stuff like that to hopefully get to that one viral thing that kind of puts me out um, out there in the world and more people will see it. And ooh, if I can get a famous person to wear one of my shirts, then I know I've, I've made it. As we start to uh, wrap this interview up, and I do appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be on the show again. I always say it's always great for people to tell their story because I feel like everybody has a story and and some of them are very unique. What are some ways people can reach out to you on social media and get in contact with you? Um, The best way through social media. So I have my Instagram is cocky son of a gun. Yes. That's my Instagram name, one word, cocky, son of a gun. Um, I think that's probably the best way to reach um, out to me personally. Um, and on Facebook, it's Carmen C. Fresh Frazier. And then for my company, um, for Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, it's make a statement t-shirt, all one word. And yeah, that's how you'll be able to locate me, find me. Website coming soon. I'm working on it. That, that's my next step. But for right now, everybody normally just hits me up on social media for orders and stuff. Well, Carmen, I do appreciate it. And I wanted to have you back again next time. Hopefully we can talk a little more about what it's like being inside a newsroom. I know had to gloss over that a little bit, but I was so enamored with your background, especially playing uh, Division One softball and playing Division One athletics that I look forward to having you back again. Oh, I would love that. There's so much you can talk with, about that. So I do enjoy speaking to you. It's almost like surreal because the first time we actually met, my assignment was to interview um, somebody in media for, you mentioned Marilyn Burkle's name, and it's really, really kind of, to be on the other side because I had to interview you and then write a paper about you. 
So I just appreciate you then even giving me your time. Um, so this is just me saying my thank you for you back in the day. And that was my talk with Carmen Frazier. I hope you enjoyed it and found a lot of insight in it. If you know someone who might enjoy this episode or any other previous episodes, please feel free to share. Next time, my guest will be Jeffrey Scott. We'll discuss his passion for the game of baseball and what it's like to be a new father, as well as so much more. You can find the link to this and other episodes of The Sports Refuge on the Sports Refuge website, or you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are heard. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.